Is there anybody who's funny out there today? It's not that much. I gotta be honest. One or two people is funny. Nobody. Not nobody's funny. Nobody's funny. Who are Ma- the people that were funny? Penny Bruce was funny. Who else is funny? The Tuffy. Do you like Richard Pryor? Yes, Richard Pryor was funny at the beginning, but there weren't that many funny people. The old time comedians, you know, weren't. Although Milton Berle, you know, a regular Milton Berle. It's it's hard to be really funny consistently. What's I, your secret? My secret is that I I I have an insane uh, portion of my brain that forces these areas to. And what is that insane portion? What is the provenance of that insane portion? Of your well, brain? I think I think looking at the world strategically that this is the way the world really is and this is the way people really are and that's funny didn't you uh, this is going to circle back and i uh, i do have eight minutes of hilarious but you need 12 that's my problem yeah you want to do your eight minutes uh, i gotta i gotta uh, no because it, you yeah. would be killed your audience would be screaming on the floor i don't want that so <laughs> i i think this might actually relate back to a, a topic of conversation that keeps coming up, which is your father. See, the interesting part of this is I didn't really know my father. In other words, he was my father, and that was that. But I never talked to him. <laughs> I never sat uh, when he was older, but he was then he was out there. I never really sat and spoke to him. You know how, what he thought about this or what he thought about that. I never did. Why don't you just say because uh, he was the architect of like that you know the early portion of your life where you lived what you had what you did right um, whether you kind of were aware of it or not so why don't you give us a little bit about him he came out of uh, his parents were European they never spoke English they lived here fifty years and they never spoke English they lived on the Lower East Side my grandfather never really worked uh, my grandmother made that was called bed gavant pillows and stuff. <laughs> How they existed, I don't know. But in those years, you didn't. And they had a whole bunch of kids. I don't know, five, six, seven kids. My father, the only person he had of his siblings was his older sister, who he had some respect for, but none, none of the others. And he avoided them after uh, after a period. He never spoke to him again. I mean, it wasn't the ideal family, but it that way. And my mother had six or seven siblings. Where was she from? She was from Poland, and I, I. The thing that I never did, I never grilled her about her, like my son is doing now, um, about her background. I mean, she spoke Polish, Russian, because they were on the Russian border. She spoke English with no accent. She spoke German, and she spoke uh, Yiddish, Yiddish, uh, which was pretty uh, impressive. Um, She came when she was about 10 or 11. You know, the family was a typical shtetl-like Jewish family. She was three feet tall. She was. There was somebody who was three feet tall. Well, she. she topped out about four nine, four ten. That's why you're not six six. They changed their name when they came to Ellis Island from Fruxwag to Fruit. Uh, you know, I, I wondered what their early lives were like, which I never, uh, you know. What did your father heard. do? My father had his own cockamamie business. My father was very smart, but he was trapped by his background. He uh, installed soda fountains for Woolworths and Whalens. He had a f- compressors and he had a store on the Lower East Side, and um, he was pretty smart. I mean, he he put together some kind of business. Uh, he went to college for that period for two years. I mean, it was unheard of. Where pace? He had potential uh, to to really you know do something uh, for that period. His life was kind of in- intertwined with his background, 
and he never could get past that. So my mother was always trying to keep him under wraps. Was he unhappy? I think he was. How did that manifest itself in the house? You couldn't cross him. If my mother said, I'm going to tell your father, you went, Ma, don't do that. (laughs) Do you have a couple of stories to demonstrate his... Yeah, I'll tell you one story. Uh, We had a piano. Why, I don't know. But we had a piano, and I would take lessons periodically. And over over the piano was a big mirror. And I would practice my baseball swing in front of the mirror. One day I'm in the in the living room practicing my swing, and he comes in. We had these French doors that opened, and I'm looking in the mirror and I see the door opening, and I turned and the bat comes around and hits the mirror, and it shatters down on the on the piano, and he chased me out of the room and I dove away from him and closed the bathroom door and locked it, and he stayed out there for hours with the baseball bat, and my brother said, "Don't come out." Which I didn't, and finally, you know, I, he got over it, sort of. And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was that was one instance. Um, and then sometimes he would he would chase you, and, and you, I would dive under the bed, and he would be kicking at you, you know, try to. What would you do besides obviously bringing down the mirror over the piano was a, a step in the wrong direction? But you know, I was a kid. I did kid, you know, whatever it was, kid things. He could be okay, and then he would he would go off. He was not a happy guy. And but he could be. I mean, he he could be funny too, which was interesting. But it, uh, the classic story is uh, we're sitting in. I'm eight years old, and we're sitting. Everybody sat in the living room, staring at the radio. And Edgar Bergen is on the radio with Charlie McCarthy. And my father turns to me and he said, "Do you ever think he's a ventriloquist on the radio? Who knows." He could just be talking. And then I heard a comedian do the same bit. So, uh, you know, that that was it. And he, he did like show business. So that's why we got the television, I think. He liked going to the movies. Did he take you to the movies? Yeah. The only time I remember was going to see. And I'm, I was like eight. It was like not a movie you would take an eight-year-old to. It was called The Dam Busters. And it was about Second World War where they, the Germany and... The British were trying to bomb the Roar Valley. It was a terrific movie, uh, which stood with me forever. And I've seen it about 20 times because it's every once in a while they show it. Maybe that's how I got, you know, I won't see crappy movies. I won't, it's, he, he would never do that. No, they didn't go to plays. That's not the kind of people they were. But Did he read? He read. My mother read. He, really? Yeah. What did they read? He read, uh, started out with the paper. And he took had three papers, the Times, the Herald Tribune, and there was another one. And he, he did read. And my mother read a lot. I remember writing book reports with her. The House of... She suggested, I'm not going to... Seventh grade, The House of Seven Gables. Nathaniel Hawthorne was like putting a vice on your head. She would say, no, no, it's very good. It's good. You know, because she, she wanted to be a real American, and she thought that was being an American. You know, reading and stuff. She did. And, uh, did so they talk to each other, your parents? They probably did, but I don't remember ever. They argued. but well, no, they didn't really argue except one time. Yeah, what happened then? My mother's family, they stayed in Europe, and it didn't work out well for them in the Second World War. So all of them were killed, except for one family, the famines. And they, were, they stayed alive because they were engineers, and they kept the, uh, the crematoriums going. 
1946, I was six years old, they came to the house to borrow money from my father. Not my, although my, at the time, he had some money, but he wasn't considered rich. They wanted to borrow money to start a business, and he couldn't give them the money because, you know, a product of the Depression, all that. And they left. They came, and they looked like death warmed over. They had the numbers on their arm. They weighed like 75 pounds. They had just gotten out of DP camps in, in Germany. My mother argued with him in English and in Yiddish. I wish I could have recorded that. She laughed at his Yiddish because it wasn't very good, but they didn't want us to hear. And they were just, my mother said, I don't care what happens to the money. They could put it in the toilet. You have to give them the money. And for that period, they went to $25,000. So it was a lot of money. That was a couple of hundred thousand dollars today. They finally, after the argument, my father said, okay. And he gave them the money. And they came back a year later. And they said, leave the money with us. We guarantee there'll be a lot of money there. He wanted the money back. They became Stanley Tool, a giant operation. He liked, was, he liked sports, right, didn't he? Yes. Well, he had played, when he was younger, he had played baseball. Um, and he had like 15 different uniforms because he played on all these teams. And he was a, t- a tremendously fast runner. He had run, run in high school against an Olympic, somebody who, a guy named Francis Hussey, ran the 100-yard dash in the Olympics, and he beat him in high school. And he took me down to Seward Park High School to show me the play. Uh, but he, he'd never trained. You know, he'd only run 60 yards after that. he was. But when he was 50, he raced my brother, who was like 16. In the street, we marked off 50 yards. It was a dead heat. <laughs> and then he said, take me upstairs, put me in a bath. <laughs> uh, that was it. But he came to every basketball game I ever played. Hmm. What was that like, having your father in the stands uh, when you played basketball? It was tremendous pressure. Hmm. It was tremendous I pressure. have absolutely no idea what that's like. <laughs> that was pressure. I would look over all the time. But he came, he he worked, he, it was a physical job, and he came in his, you know, in his clothes from the work, but he came to every game I ever played. If I had a good game, I could see that smile on his face. If I didn't, it wasn't so good. But he, didn't, what he especially didn't like when I got knocked around. It was this one we played... And I was getting killed. I think I weighed at that time like 122 pounds or something like that. But I knew how to fight because that I grew up in the Bronx and I knew how to do it. So we were going into the locker room and the guy the guy weighed about 200 pounds. He was just beating the shit out of me and he's talking to somebody. And I hit him full flush in the face and then walked into the locker room. No one said a word and my father saw it. And he turned and there's a smile on his face. He just nodded. Because then my hand swelled, swelled up like four times. I couldn't play the second half. What was the guy's name he hit in the face? Bob Scarpito. He wound up playing football for Notre Dame. He punted, and he also punted in the NFL. But he was never the same after you popped him. Uh, no. Never. <laughs> I, I don't know if he was ever the same, but he, he, he never played in that game again. So there was blood all over the place. So anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting period. Uh, you know, so what is that shit? I don't even I don't even understand why you answer the phone. I don't know. The phone rings. I'm here. The phone rings 17, 18 times a day. What are you hoping for? Well, it might be some, you know, somebody saying you just won a million dollars. Usually, I get update your Google listing. I don't have a Google listing. Let me the fuck alone. I don't want a Google listing. What am I going to do with a Google listing? So could it be? It's so hot in here. It's great. It's a little warm. Could it be? Old Jews are coming to, to Schwitz. Could it be that some of your 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 thinking 
your Weltanschung was actually, even though you didn't sit down with him and have these in-depth conversations, some of it actually was commuted to you because although we know that you're the most congenial guy, some have accused you in the past, some, I won't name names, of being uh, slightly judgmental and maybe... That is a misnomer if I ever heard one. All right, maybe I'm a little mis- uh, uh, I'm a little judgmental. However, people need to be judged because most people are shit. Not, of course, not anyone listening to this, but you know, people are they're they're scurves. So why why are people because scurves? people are I don't think somehow it takes away from their own well being. Mm. You know, the, like rich people don't care about anybody who isn't rich. It's you know, like they're voting for Trump because he's going to save them a few dollars on taxes. It's not going to affect their lives. It's bullshit like that. Do you have one sort of final story from your from your childhood that you'd like to share? Looking back on my childhood, I I don't look. I look at it as it was okay. I mean, no one bothered me except for my father if you crossed him, and you learned not to cross him. Played ball in very every season. We'd go at it. Guys were playing. You went down and played ball. School was reasonably okay. You know, I never thought of myself as a rocket scientist, but it turned out that I was pretty smart. I didn't even know that. I had an older brother who I respected. I liked, you know, I would cost him his life practically. I'll get my brother kind of thing. He said, don't get me, they'll kill me. Although he was tough. He was very strong and he was almost as fast as my father. And I was a half a step slower than them. But that was major, major speed. Was he a basketball player? He was a guy who you didn't want to play against. He could jump, he could run, and he was strong. Couldn't shoot to save his life. Uh, I was totally opposite. I wouldn't grab a rebound if it fell on me. Uh, I would never defend, but I could shoot. So I've seen the non-defending. Yeah, the, the, uh, his turns to I, I don't want to. I don't want to run. He, and he could really jump. I mean, he, he's a good athlete. And it was really fast. Do you think that? But, but but my father never made us work. We never worked in like you know in high school or anything. We worked summer jobs, but we didn't we didn't do that. But I never had, had any, I was afraid of him, but I was never, had ill will, you know. Uh, Even though he tried to kill you on a number of occasions? Yeah, but that was, I thought, normal. <laughs> that was the way it worked. And my mother would always intervene and, Ben, he's a kid. But you can't kill him. But if he took his glasses off, you better run. So concludes the three-part series, American Cynic, for what we will abide. But my father will continue being the American Cynic, and I hope he does so forever. I want to record every conversation we have because even after all this time, knowing him as I do, I still feel I don't fully understand him. He's got ways of thinking and being that remain a mystery, and it's probably better that way, but I still want to know it all. For now, I'm lucky that I have him at the ripe old age of almost 77, and I'll keep grilling him, as the saying goes. One more thing. The self-described world's oldest man had one last message for his listening audience. I'm going to give a message at the end. This is Do it now. The message is you can't equivocate. You can't give in to this, these idiots. You have to fight. If I have to become an anarchist and dress in black, I'll do it. You have to fight every step of the way. And people say, pick your fights. Don't pick your fights. Fight everything. Fight everything. Don't let them get away with anything. No, it's not going to come to any anything positive. But just just battle everything because they're wrong. Now, the anarchist movement, that could be. Is that your next gig when you finally retire from dentistry? Yeah, you know. So fight is your message. Yeah. Fight them, make them, make them stop and think. 
And when the machine guns have to be used. You would like to purchase... An M40. It's a recoilless rifle. It's very... It, it, I think it has a four or 500 range. It's very accurate, and it can be... 500 by, yards. By one person. Right. Uh, it, it, it is heavy and difficult to transport. How do you plan on... Well, I do have a Subaru. No one cares what's on top of a Subaru. This has been part three of American Cynic, an extended interview for What We Will Abide with my father, Albert Schindler. Please check out a new podcast venture I'm involved in called Ebb and Flow, which is about starting the Stone Independent School with colleagues of mine this year. You can find it in Apple Podcasts and Overcast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Yeah, our papa's a little nuts, but we still love him.